This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. The podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith and as always, I'll be your host. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. As you probably noticed, we have been in the midst of an ongoing series where we've tried to discern the various passages from the Old Testament that have impacted the messianic expectation set forth by the early Jews and the early Christians. And now we're knee-deep into the book of Isaiah, and we are looking at the Isianic servant songs, the four servant songs of Isaiah that are found in Isaiah 40 through 55. Last week we looked at the first Isianic servant song in Isaiah 42, and this week we'll look at the second servant song in Isaiah 49. This is episode 265, Isaiah's second servant song. So here are some of the questions I would like to explore in this week's episode as we look at the 49th chapter of Isaiah and the servant song embedded within. First, how does the second servant song help further give meaning to the original identity of the servant. Second, what are the various roles given to this servant by God, and how does this relationship define the two distinguished figures, the God of Israel and his servant? And lastly, in what ways can we discern the influence upon the New Testament authors from the second Isianic servant song, as these New Testament authors portray Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at the second of four Isianic servant songs. Our passage is in Isaiah 49, and it's in the first six verses. Let's begin. Verse 1. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me, and he has made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with Yahweh, and my reward is with my God. And now, says Yahweh, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of Yahweh, and my God is my strength. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations, so that 
my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That's Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6. So in this servant song, we have the Isianic servant talking to Yahweh and Yahweh talking to the Isianic servant. The identity of the servant seems quite clear. It is explicitly stated that the servant is Israel. We can see that in verse 3. You are my servant Israel. And yet, this servant seems to have a redemptive function to the wayward persons among the children of Israel. We can see in verse 6 that one of the roles of this Israelite servant is to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. So this figure is not simply the nation of Israel. It seems to be a term that refers to the ideal Israel, the faithful Israel, among the rest of Israel that is in need of redemption. So it seems to be a reference to the nation, but not a collective reference to the entirety of the nation. It seems to be a reference to a faithful servant who is functioning in God's redemptive purposes to bring restoration to the rest of Israel and to raise up the tribes of Jacob. Now the role is not simply to bring restoration to the people of God. It also has a worldwide salvific purpose. The salvation of God through this servant is going to reach to the end of the earth and it's going to be a light of the nations. It's a light of the Gentiles. So it begins with the Jewish people, but it doesn't end with the Jewish people. The salvation begins with the Jewish people and ultimately ends with the nations reaching as far as the end of the earth. So there's a very interesting perspective about this servant. What is the relationship between this servant and Yahweh? Well, clearly the two are distinguished. The servant is not called Yahweh. Yahweh is the one that has raised up this particular servant. In fact, Yahweh is the one that formed the servant in the womb, meaning Yahweh is the creator, and the servant has been created by Yahweh. It is actually one of God's creatures. The relationship between Yahweh and the servant is also further identified as the servant refers to Yahweh as my God. The servant, of course, cannot be Yahweh if Yahweh is the God of this servant. That much is quite clear. It's very simple. That is just plainly evident. Now, the New Testament authors quite clearly were influenced by this particular passage in many different ways. And one of the authors that seems to have been deeply influenced by the Isianic servant image is Luke the Evangelist. And it's important for our listeners to know that Luke the Evangelist not only wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the Book of Acts. And so as we look at a variety of passages from the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, that is indicating the deep impact upon Luke the Evangelist from the Isianic servant passages and arguably, for our study today, from the second 
Isaiahic servant passage, the one from Isaiah chapter 49. So let's not waste any time. Let's move to our second point, the use of the second servant song in describing Jesus' conception. So we could look in Matthew if we wanted to. We can look in the Gospel of John if we wanted to. But I wanted to focus on Luke because Luke seems to be one of the authors of the New Testament. He's not the only one, but he seems to be one of the major ones that has a demonstrable influence from Isaiah 49. So let's look at the account of Jesus' birth and the announcement of the birth of Jesus. So the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says to her, according to Luke chapter 1, verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. That's Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 35. And we can see a lot of things here in Gabriel's announcement to Mary that seemed to be echoing what we saw in Isaiah 49. Now remember, in Isaiah 49, we can see that Yahweh has called the servant from the womb, from the body of the servant's mother. The servant is named by God. Here we can see that Mary is going to conceive and bear a son, and the name is already given. So we have the naming from one of God's messengers. We have the fact that naming occurs while the child is in the womb of Mary. And we can see that God functions as the creator, or Yahweh is the creator of the servant. Here, Yahweh, through his creative presence extended by his Holy Spirit, actually creates this holy child. The holy child is the holy one that is begotten in the Greek of Luke 135. And it's because of the miracle of the Holy Spirit, which is further defined in the parallelism as the power of the Most High, that the holy child will be called God's son. He is God's son because of the miracle creation, the miracle of his coming into existence. God is the creator of Jesus in Luke chapter 1, and Yahweh is the creator of the servant in Isaiah 49. But there seems to be a lot of parallels between those particular passages. Even in Isaiah 49.5, Yahweh is the one who had formed the servant from the womb to be the servant. And the function of that is, of course, to restore Jacob for Israel to be gathered. And we could see here that Jesus is the one that is going to have the throne of his father David, meaning he's going to be the royal king from David's dynasty, and then he's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom, of course, will have no end. So this servant Jesus is going to have rulership and dominion over the house of Jacob 
just as the servant is going to have a redeeming purpose as the servant over Jacob and wayward Israel. Let's move to our third point. Point number three, the use of the second servant song in the sword from the mouth imagery. So we saw in Isaiah 49 that Yahweh has made the mouth of the servant like a sharp sword. And so there's something about the mouth of this servant in that he will function as a weapon with his words, maybe a weapon of judgment, but also we saw that he has another function, a function of offering salvation and deliverance. And it's interesting that these two themes of judgment and salvation are going to be mixed together in the way that the New Testament authors portray Jesus and his word. So it's also important for us to realize that this is not the only time that a messianic figure in Isaiah is portrayed with this imagery. Earlier in Isaiah, in 1st Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11 verse 4, the branch of David, the shoot from Jesse's family tree, is described in chapter 11 verse 4 by saying, with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. So we could see here that this messianic figure is going to use his mouth, the breath of his lips, in order to not only function with judgment, like with the rod and the slaying of the wicked, but also he's going to have the function of delivering. He's going to judge the poor and decide with fairness the afflicted of the earth. And so his words have dual functions. They have a function of good and a function of judgment. Now, in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, it indicates that the gospel message, which the New Testament describes as the word of God, is described in terms as a two-edged sword. And since we know that Jesus, his mouth is described as a sword, and that what came out of the mouth of Jesus, of course, is the gospel, this helps us to better understand the original meaning of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, which says, quote, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Now, I'm aware that there's a popular Christian interpretation of this passage that identifies the Word of God as the Bible. But that's not what the context means. That's not how Hebrews describes the Word of God as the spoken message of salvation. And the book of Hebrews already has portrayed Jesus as a preacher of the gospel, a preacher of the word. It says that earlier in Hebrews chapter 2. What's interesting here that Jesus' gospel is described as a two-edged sword. 
Now, the author in the New Testament that seems to demonstrate the highest level of impact in regard to Jesus as the servant who has the mouth like a sword is the author of the book of Revelation. It's John the Revelator. So when John was on the island of Patmos, he had a trance-like vision in which Jesus appeared to him and commissioned to him his ministry. And so when John describes the appearance of Jesus, he says in Revelation 1.16 that in his right hand he had seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Okay, so within the book of Revelation, which is full of imagery, which needs to be understood, and the imagery, of course, is drawing upon the culture of the first century, but it's also drawing on the imagery from the Hebrew Bible, it's very likely that this is drawing from the image of the second servant song from Isaiah chapter 49, where the servant has the mouth like a sword. Now, Jesus himself when he introduces himself to Pergamum, he says in Revelation 2.12, and to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Now, those in Pergamum would have been well aware of this imagery because Pergamum was known to be the Roman seat of judgment to where a particular official there in Pergamum actually had the power of the sword in order to judge people right then and there. They didn't have to appeal all the way to Rome or even appeal all the way uh, to Ephesus. That particular person resided right there in Pergamum. And so when Jesus is claiming to be the person who bears the authority with his words, with his mouth, as a sharp two-edged sword, they would know that he is claiming something that subverts the claims of the Roman Empire, understood locally there in Pergamum at the end of the first century. Now, by the end of the passage, in Revelation 2.16, Jesus tells the church in Pergamum that they need to therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. That's Revelation 2.16. So Jesus takes upon the role as the judge there in Pergamum, and he indicates that those who do not repent, those who don't listen to his words and put them into practice, that they will soon face the judgment of Jesus and his words. Now, in Revelation, the words of Jesus have two functions. As we've seen, they could function as words of judgment, but also Jesus is described as the martyr, and a martyr is someone who dies for that which they speak. He is a martis, a witness, but he's someone who dies on behalf of that particular witness, which is why the word of God in the book of Revelation refers to Jesus' gospel. The word of God is the testimony of Jesus, according to Revelation 1, 1 and verse 2. And we can see this dual imagery a little bit later in Revelation. In Revelation 19, verse 15, in describing Jesus riding on a white horse, it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and 
he will shepherd them with a rod of iron. Revelation 19.15. That's interesting. Notice the dual functions. He has the comforting, enduring, leading, guiding role as the shepherd, shepherding them with the rod of iron, but also he has the role of judgment. Out of his mouth comes the sword that strikes down the nations. Just as we saw in Isaiah chapter 11, to where he has the dual rule of offering comfort to the afflicted, but also the sharp sword and the rod of judgment. And a few verses later, in 1921 of Revelation, it says, The rest were killed with the sword which comes from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. So interestingly there, the sword functions as the role of judgment. Quite clearly there, the author of Hebrews and John the Revelator have been influenced by the portrayal of the Isianic servant in Isaiah 49. And they took that imagery and they used it to refer to Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. They took the reference of this nationalistic figure and they used it to refer to the Jewish king, the king who represents his people. Our last point today, point number four, is the use of the second servant song in Jesus as the bringer of salvation. Now we had mentioned earlier that Luke the Evangelist wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, and so we can see quite a lot of influence from Isaiah's servant songs in the Book of Acts. So the purpose statement of the Book of Acts seems to indicate that Jesus is sharing with his followers the responsibility to carry forth the mission of salvation beginning with the Jewish people and ultimately ending with the ends of the earth. So when Jesus is asked about whether it's time to restore the kingdom to the nation of Israel, he says in Acts 1-7 that it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. That's Acts chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. And it's that language there at the end that the followers of Jesus are going to be his witnesses, starting from Jerusalem, then moving on to Judea and Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth, which seems to deliberately echo Isaiah 49, verse 6 to where God's servant is supposed to begin by redeeming Israel and ultimately to be a light to the nations, bringing the salvation to the very ends of the earth. And it's the consensus of scholars on the book of Acts that Acts chapter 1 verse 8, which is the purpose statement of the entirety of the book of Acts, is deliberately drawing on Isaiah 49 verse 6. And it makes Jesus the suffering servant, share his servant role with his own followers. As Jesus is the servant, he now gathers others to him to carry forth this particular ministry. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is not involved. 
as we can see later in the book of Acts when the Apostle Paul is on trial, he makes the following statement in Acts 26, verse 22. He says, So, having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, and that Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Acts 26, verses 22 through 23. And it's there in verse 23, where Jesus is the first person to proclaim to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And what is he proclaiming? He's proclaiming light, first to the Jewish people and then to the Gentiles. Just like Isaiah 49 says that the servant will be the light to the nations, beginning with Israel and ultimately to those who are at the ends of the earth. Of course, the nations in Isaiah are the goim, the word that is understood as Gentiles. So quite clearly there, Paul, through the voice of the evangelist Luke, is seeing Jesus as the one that brings light beginning with the Jewish people and then to the Gentiles. And that, of course, has been shared with the followers of Jesus, and it creates the entire structure of the book of Acts. And so Jesus and his followers are now embodying the role of the Isianic servant song, as we see in Isaiah 49. So how has Isaiah 49 helped us to better understand Jesus, the Jewish Messiah? Well, Jesus is God's servant. The relationship between Jesus and God is still clear. Jesus was created by God. God is Yahweh, who is the God of Jesus. And Jesus functions as the servant, bringing salvation and deliverance and restoration, beginning with the children of Israel, but ultimately ending with the light going to the Gentiles, to the remotest part of the earth. And Jesus' words have a dual function, being the gospel that brings comfort and peace and shepherding, but also words of judgment that have the ability to strike down and judge the wicked. And there you have it. That's the influence of the second Isianic servant song upon the New Testament Christological expectation. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we look at the third of our four servant songs in Isaiah, looking at Isaiah chapter 50. Please look forward to our next episode. Now, if you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for absolutely free by subscribing on YouTube and iTunes, by giving us an honest review on iTunes, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation to help keep the podcast on the air, please check out the PayPal link that is attached to this particular episode in the description. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.